Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. Hi, this is Andrew Sean Greer. I'm a novelist in San Francisco and uh, the writer of three works of fiction, including The Confessions of Max Tivoli, and I have a book coming out in April 2008. I'm going to read today a story called Wakefield, which was originally a story written by Nathaniel Hawthorne in 1853. Um, He wrote it. It's rather short, um, and it's sort of a sketch of an idea, and a lot of authors have written versions of it, and so I thought I would take my own take on it. Wakefield, after Nathaniel Hawthorne. Mr. Wakefield was not a man you would have picked for mutiny. Short and sharp-eyed, grinning, he always understood a punchline and never stayed too long at a party. He had once gotten too drunk at lunch and gave an embarrassing business presentation, but that was exceptional, and people liked the story because it mapped out the very frontier of Mr. Wakefield rather than the center. Normally he was neither square nor queer, but somewhere in between, polite but self-amused, and most people like this. He seemed to have an interior life, just large enough for himself and a few rare fantasies, nothing more. His hats were out of fashion. In the mid-1950s he lived with his wife on Gramercy Park in an apartment with a grand address, an interior, but bad plumbing and poor views. He did not smoke. So why him? Why Wakefield, of all men? Heaven knows. That morning, his wife made him an omelet with some of last night's leftover cheese, and when he was done, she told him to be careful of the paycheck cash he was carrying, and please to take care of Crossing 14th, because someone had been hit there last week and because she loved him, her Wakefield. She actually said this, and he was struck with brief passion for her. Standing at the sink, glancing slyly his way with her big rump in that rose-patterned skirt. But it was morning, and work awaited, so he kissed her roughly as a teenager might, so that afterwards she blushed, murmuring, Well now, mischief in her eye, but within a minute he was out of the apartment. They were both nineteen when they were married, now they were thirty-two. His wife, a corn queen, a beauty, a foreign film buff. She'd always been able to get his secrets. He had never heard one of hers. Did she even have them? Then he was out on the street. Beautiful day. A chill had come unexpectedly into September, and while later fifth would become a gray mass of overcoats and wind-blown leaves, that morning was a bright summer day caught in ice. "'Where you going, Mr. Wakefield?' the doorman asked, and Wakefield laughed, discovering he'd been standing in the open door for too long. "'I think I'll walk a block before work,' he said. The man nodded and Wakefield was moving on, walking north, grinning at the cold, adjusting his old hat. He thought he'd walked the block before work. It cut too hard the day before him, serrated with details, papers, ideas, aggressive talk with men eager to take his job, their cruel jokes, the hard stare of secretaries he would never possess. It cut too hard. He would face it in a moment, and for all he knew for years to come, but first a walk. Just in front of him he saw a little dog with a leash trailing behind it. White, some kind of terrier with leaves caught all along its bottom fur. It must have been running. Some rich lady's dog escaped from the park. It looked at Wakefield, panting, grimacing. Good boy, good boy, he said, slowly reaching down for the leash. 
but the dog took off before he could get it and he was left grasping air. For some reason he could never explain later, not twenty years later, when everyone wanted to know, nor the twenty years after that until his death, he ran after the dog. East, clutching his hat with one hand, running east after the dog, it scampered and stopped watching him, tongue flipping out of its mouth, then went on. He watched across the next avenue and he nearly gave up a chase except a truck was rumbling by, and when it had passed, the little dog was gone. Wakefield found himself in a strange country, only a block away from his house, but in a direction he and his wife had never gone. They were New Yorkers in the fifties, and had their butcher and grocer and flower man all west of them, near Gramercy. Third was a world away, almost another century from broad modern fifth in its polished beauty queens and ad men rushing for cabs and giggling after a champagne evening. Beside him he saw a sign for an apartment, and when he looked up he saw the sign again, attached to a rusted balcony on which a geranium sat in its pot, stunned by the cold. A view from that balcony, a view east. He looked at the buildings and smoke and looming trouble of the eastern horizon, what must be a river out there, and Brooklyn, a view east. He could not imagine it. For all his life he couldn't see it. The ice-crystal halo of the sun had melted and the world on this block was moving faster, thawing, still bright and beautiful on the cold day. He looked up at the balcony again, fifth floor, with a view he could not imagine, a view of infinity for all he knew. Within an hour, he'd used the money in his pocket to lease the place, a little one-bedroom. Standing on that balcony in the cold snap morning, he knew he would not be at work that day, or home that night. Perhaps tomorrow. He wasn't sure. Children sang from a nearby schoolyard. Flags fluttered in the blinking impossible distance. Ten years passed in this way. How did it happen? Simply, morning after morning. At the beginning of his travels, as he called it, he thought of it as needing rest, needing that view from the balcony, and nearly every hour he was about to walk out the door and head home to his worried wife. This comforting thought, that he'd soon be home, relieved Wakefield and allowed him to fall back asleep on the little daybed near the window, and so the hour for leaving would pass. He would awake, it would be too late, and he'd think, tomorrow, and tomorrow would be just the same. So each day, which always seemed like it might be his final one, was reclaimed from the future like Dutch fields from the sea. On these unsteady days he still managed to build a life. It was not better than the one he'd had, it was similar in many ways, but poorer, more lonely, more free. The butcher shop across the street needed help with its books, so Wakefield found himself behind a desk again, charting numbers on pads of paper misted with blood. It wasn't happy work, and the friends he made there were not the greatest friends of his life. He'd lost all of those long ago, in the silence after his college years. But the place was so loud and real, the echo of steel and bone and laughter that it made Wakefield's life here real. From balcony to butchers, an easy flow each day. And he loved it because it would be nothing to let go. The place, the job, he could leave it at any time. He'd think, tomorrow. He was aware at first of the life he'd left for his travels. He saw his name in the papers, a wealthy man gone missing, and even stood on the corner of Irving, 
to watch his own widow step into a black car and drive to what he presumed was his funeral. Lawyers took care of the rest, he supposed. At least he saw that his wife still lived in their old place. He found out no more than this, was no more curious than a bystander. By that time, he had forgotten so many details of that other world. You would never have recognized him. His beard, first of all, almost completely disguised him. Not only because it covered his handsomest features, his cheeks and jawline, but because it was so unlike Wakefield, again, something on the very frontier of him. But of course, isn't that where he was? A decade later, a block away, at the border of all possible lives. He went hatless in the snow, but wore a long black coat everywhere, lined with quilted red plaid, and he looked for all the world like a famous person or a madman. He was neither. He was a butcher's accountant who had taken up new hobbies and habits that suited him, no better than his old ones, no worse. He took up painting. He was no good, but it helped him meet a girl. Sonia, a better painter, younger than him, and nothing like Mrs. Wakefield except in the eyes. He loved her, but he never told her. After all, any morning now he would be gone. It was in the tenth year, not long after Sonia left him, that Wakefield went on a weekend walk around the corner. He had taken up smoking a pipe and was leaving the tobacconists when a noise down the block attracted him. There were dozens of teenage girls in short skirts and sloppy sweaters, and Wakefield loved women, so he went to get a closer look. Imagine him in that black coat and beard, a Victorian among all the teeny boppers. An enormous crowd flanked the avenue as if the Romans were marching through, and somebody told him it was a group of musicians coming through town in a limousine. Signs were waving everywhere. Girls were screaming. Wakefield was charmed and amused. Their hysteria took him outside himself. The screaming heightened and the crowd began to move. He was taken up in the crush and pushed along, half-frightened by the young people and their manias. He found himself powerless in the crowd, moving along his old Fifth Avenue until he was pressed immovably against an older woman. She looked as dazed as he was. Her arms were trapped by groceries and she was a twig helplessly afloat as he was in a crowd she hadn't expected. Out shopping, probably. Her blue eyes flickered with confusion until they met his own. Of course, it was his wife. It took a moment for him to match this woman to the attic-safe memory of his wife. Time had grayed and eaten at his version of her, but here this woman was alive, red-faced and confused by the street scene, but radiant with the excitement around her as if she'd heard some good news that he, of course, could never guess. She did not recognize him. She was still a beauty, broader, that cleverness set more deeply in her face. No corn queen, but something rich and free, and perhaps, as with even happy widows, a little sad and cruel. Of course, his death must have meant wealth for her. He saw, in the second before she moved away, that she still wore his wedding ring. Unmarried widow in a good mood, desperately, and for the first time, he reached out to touch her. What an unkind thing he'd done, not to her but to the old Wakefield, to have deprived him of this. But of course the crowd was moving, and she was off, looking a little frightened, caught in the riptide of people. He watched her go and wondered if, perhaps, he'd loved her. 
it was a hard thing to know. Her fresh blonde hair disappeared behind a sign. She did not look back. In fact, even face to face, she had not glanced at him for more than an instant. After all, he was not the sort of man you would notice. Even after she was gone and girls were screaming, Wakefield thought everything might change. He might find his old doorstep again on Irving, find his old blonde bride whose scent still hung in the air. But the details of the afternoon began to snow across his mind. He fled the crowd, went to the store to do some errands. He did not go that day. Ten more years passed, and though Wakefield did not change, the city did. His view, for instance, his holy view of the mystical East had been blocked by a college library, a cement wall built against the sunrise. There were no more horses on the street, not even police horses. A kind of eternal November had come over the few blocks of his world, something bare and brown and gritty. It was his day off, and just the day before he'd abandoned one of his paintings, another russet version of that view he remembered from years before, so the thought of staying in his apartment filled him with unnameable sadness. To confront that failed vision, the implication of all his failed visions, his bad talent, it was too much. So he walked the streets, though it was cold and dark. He visited the places he had gone to for twenty years, but the bookstore had nothing to interest him in the window, and the bars were too full, he would feel lonesome, and everything else he knew had changed or closed down by then. Wakefield was fifty-two. He had forgotten his hat and raced along the streets, head down, until he found himself at a very familiar door. He had been here many times before. This spot on Fifth was an old lover, always receiving him, always sending him away again. Without knowing he had marked it, he knew every change that had taken place here. The retirement of the old doorman, the death of Mrs. George in 5B, the way one notes newspaper articles about a foreign country one has visited. But so little really had changed. The same old bushes, the same glass door streaked with paint. The building had not changed. He had not changed. Perhaps, perhaps nothing had changed. He saw only the warm light in the window. The key worked. He was inside. He was upstairs in his own door once again. It did not surprise Wakefield to find no one inside. There was the smell of recent cooking and a barely drunk bottle of wine carefully stoppered on the kitchen table beside a letter smoothed out as if it had been read many times. Even from the hall, he could see the warm light of that lamp, could imagine the couch beneath it. He hung up his plaid-lined coat on his old hook beside another coat and went into the other room. He barely noticed the letter on the table, certainly did not read it. He could not know what it said, or that he would never have the chance to see it again, that it would be burned in the fire that evening, gone forever. Wakefield could not know that it was a love letter, sent to his wife the week before, a letter from an old mutual friend who had comforted his wife in the decades of her widowhood and now, at last, declared his awkward, ill-timed love. It was badly written and smeared in places, possibly from tears, whose I do not know. It had been crumpled and tossed out, retrieved, 
iron flat and scent, and there it lay. It had been read many times, privately, between sips of wine. It was the only love letter the room would ever hold, but what of that? There is no guessing if we do not choose these other lives. Wakefield entered his old living room. He saw the lamp and the time-softened couch, and it was just exactly what he wanted. The place was as warm as he had hoped. He began to forget the balcony, the blocked view, the painting. One by one the details died, although, of course, they might return tomorrow. But this room was kind, so Wakefield took off his coat and shoes, lay down on the couch under the old lamp that he'd fixed long ago, and fell asleep. Later he did not hear the key turn in the lock. He did not hear the woman step into the room, or her three loud sobs as she stared at him. He did not hear the letter go into the fire. Wakefield was sunk deep in sleep, in that great relief that only sleep offers us, true solitude, escaping at last that ceaseless friend, that awful constant companion, ourselves. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. I'm Andrew Sean Greer, and I'm taking part in Litquake, which is the premier San Francisco literary event in which dozens, almost a hundred, San Franciscan authors perform in libraries, theaters, bookstores, and bars in October. I'm honored to take part in the opening night event, which is a tribute to Armistead Maupin on October 6, 2007. He's the author of Tales of the City and many other works, and he's a beloved author here in San Francisco, and the whole city will be turning out to celebrate him.